In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Betches Media presents... I like beer. I don't know if you do. Okay. Do you like beer, Senator? Or not. Uh, my party is going bat crazy. Yeah! You're the pop- Alternative facts. Oh, goodness. The Betches Sup Podcast. America! Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sup Daily Podcast. I'm Amanda Duberman, and today I have the honor of speaking with Simone Sanders. Simone Sanders is a political strategist who currently serves as senior advisor for former Vice President Joe Biden's 2020 presidential campaign. She was also the youngest presidential press secretary on record while working on Senator Bernie Sanders' 2016 campaign. She's the former chair of the Coalition of Juvenile Justice Emerging Leaders Committee, and she's also a former member of the Federal Advisory Committee on Juvenile Justice. And of course, she's also an author. Works for me. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. So your book is titled No, You Shut Up. And that's based on a very, very particular anecdote, but it seems like a bit of a coda that you've had to employ throughout your life. But I was wondering if you could share with our listeners uh, where the title comes from, because it's a pretty amazing anecdote. (laughs) Thank you. So, uh, yes, my book is called No, You Shut Up, Speaking Truth to Power and Reclaiming America. And um, when I was a CNN political commentator, I used to be in some very interesting situations, and one of which was with the former Attorney General of Virginia. Now he works in the Trump administration, Ken Cuccinelli. We're on TV discussing the aftermath of Charlottesville, um, and you know Ken is saying something, and I jump in because it was wrong, like I usually do. I, you know, you, I'm no stranger to interrupting uh, respectfully, but interrupting yes. is, you know, I think there's an issue here. Like, hey, I want to correct the record. I corrected the record, and Kim said, can you just, Simone, will you just shut up for a minute and let me talk? And I was like, I'm very taken aback. And Chris Cuomo was anchoring the show that day. This is when he was on in the morning, and Ken Cuccinelli goes on to say, how do you get them to be quiet? They just won't shut up. And I'm like, them, they, I'm sitting right here. So I told Ken Cuccinelli, no, you shut up. You're trying to excuse white supremacy on this program, and you cannot talk to me that way. And Chris Cuomo backed me up. He was my accomplice in that moment. And um, Ken Cuccinelli asked me to apologize to him. And I was like, you won't be getting an apology from me. And he was like, I'm sorry. And she's sorry. And I'm like, I'm not sorry. So I, I say that because I think many people have been given the proverbial shut up, whether we've been in the office, the classroom, the boardroom, a TV news panel, right? And now is the time where we actually need to speak up and not shut up. And uh, I think that this book came at a a really great time. I didn't know that we'd be in the midst of a global pandemic and the country would be gripped with unrest and people would be just so hungry and clamoring for change. But I hope that it is helpful to folks who are thinking, okay, I want to do something, but where do I start? How can I get engaged and get involved? And it also gives you a little political analysis. But, um, you know, I just thank you, King Cuccinelli, because had he not told me to shut up, I probably would not have written this book. Yeah. And then, of course, in the intro, it's like so gratifying because I think a lot of people maybe don't know. He's also the same dude who said, you're welcome in this country as long as you don't become a public charge and made a fool of himself. Did you write your intro like 
Was that the first thing you wrote, or did you go back to that later? The intro was the first thing that amazing, I wrote. Amazing, amazing. I was thing. hoping I'm, that was I need to be really clear about why I'm doing this. Yeah, love it. <laughs> so you, you mentioned early in the book uh, that you didn't have any black teachers growing up. And then you spend the book, then there's uh, sort of explaining your trajectory. And then you mentioned it again later. And I remember just in the book being really shocked to read that again after seeing how many things you were able to become, even though you didn't have models for them. Um, you know, you recount racism from microaggressions to discrimination in the workplace to even by police, what you just talked about being spoken down to. Do you think you've always, you've been so equipped to confront these barriers because you kind of have always been asked to because you've been the first in so many spaces? I think per, perhaps, maybe, you know, I, I don't, I guess the answer to that question is I'm not really sure. I don't know if I'm necessarily more equipped um, to handle any of the isms that come my way, whether it's sexism, ageism, racism, than um, another person of color. I, I, I guess I will say, though, that I realize, and I write about this in the book, that at a very early age that there are, um, you know, two realities basically that I lived, for lack of a better term, that I was living as a young person. So it was the reality that I lived in. I was in my neighborhood and I lived in a mostly African-American, all African-American neighborhood, um, middle-class neighborhood in North Omaha. But then I would go to a mostly um, white high school um, where there were only maybe five, six girls of color in my actual class um, and only a handful at the school. And I realized that that was a very different reality. Like early on, it was just very clear to me that like, okay, I, the, there are people that I go to school with that I am probably the only black person that they've ever interacted with. Um, whereas as a person of color, a black person, I have lived my life interacting with people that don't look like me for, uh, for a, a very long time. And so I guess I would say that, um, I, I, I guess I put it like this, and I don't, I don't, I haven't told this story in my book, but I tell this story to, I talk about this when I taught my class at Harvard and at USC. You know, it is, I know what it's like to traverse the world, um, being very aware of how I am perceived, who I am, what I look like, how I am um, taking up space in a room or not taking up space in a room. I'm very aware of that every single day. There are other people though, um, that aren't as aware of how they traverse the world every single day. It's not, no one is reminding them every single day. I am constantly reminded every single day um, when I leave the house that I'm a black woman. So, a bald black woman, actually. So, <laughs> so I think that, that that is the difference. And I think that maybe, um, I mean, I've, I've, we often make a choice about how we encounter an ism, how we handle it. But I think that most people of color in this country, especially black people, know what it's like to traverse the world being reminded every single day um, that they are that they are black. Every single day. There's not a day that I leave my house that I don't get a reminder, that I don't get a reinforcement. Yeah. And I mean, I'm even ashamed to say I was shocked by parts in the book where not only are you reminded, but you, you describe having to anticipate those reminders and calling ahead to tell people, this is what I look like and I, am a th I work as a staff on this campaign and I will be at the store at this time down to those specifics to make sure because you just wanted to get to work. Like, I just wanted to get you to weren't work trying to start a revolution. You just didn't want to be late to work and you had to I go through all of that just to not to be late to work. I just oh, didn't yeah. want to be late. And I mean, in 20, the, the story you tell, I talk about this in 2016 when I would um, early on when I joined the Sanders campaign, I would travel with them all the time and I've introduced him at rallies yeah. and I would go to the 
we would arrive separately and I would go to the entrances for staff and I wouldn't be able to get in. Someone regularly would have to come downstairs and validate that I was who I said I was so I could get in and I would always be late. And I think people thought for a little bit, it was a running joke that I was all, Simone's late, she's being a diva. I'm actually not being a diva, I'm being held up at security. Um, wow. So it is the, the most visceral time that I describe in the book is when um, I, do call, I do call ahead the day before and I say, please, I basically ask the advanced staff to say, look guys, let everybody know this is what time I'm coming, it's kind of car I'm driving and then I'm bald and then I'm black. And they're laughing and they're like, Simone, I'm like, nope, you'll always say that I'm coming, but I can't take the, the issues today because this particular week it happened every single day. I end up showing up three different checkpoints. I have three different issues. The last checkpoint, which is a, a parking spot with my name on it, like a little piece of paper, I pull in and these gentlemen come running up to my car, yelling all types of things that I will not repeat here on this program, telling me to move, that this isn't for me. And I just break down in my car and I start crying. Uh, and I end up, the, our security folks, our team comes down and gets me, they take me up into the whole room. And I pull myself together because Senator Sanders and his wife Jane were a couple, maybe 15 minutes behind me. And when they come in, I start explaining to them, you know, kind of what's about to happen, what's going on. And Jane, the senator's wife, interrupts me and she asks me what's wrong. And I just break down to the ugly cry. Yeah. <laughs> and I tell her, yeah. you know, the long version of the story. And the senator Sanders interrupts and he was like, well, why can't you get in? And she's like, well, racism, Bernie, racism. Yeah. Racism, Bernie. Yes. And I'm like, yes, maybe a little ageism and sexism too. But right. then Senator Sanders says um, something that, you know, it didn't seem profound at the time, but when I reflect upon it, it is extremely profound. He says, well, if you can't get in, who else is being kept out of the building that we don't know about? Yeah. And that is something that I think about every single day in all of the work that I do. Who is being kept out of the proverbial building? I think it's something we should all think about and we should seek to stand in the gap for folks because that is really how we do change making work and we, you know, things become better. Hey, American Fever Dream listeners, I'm here to tell you that there is no reason to panic the next time you're searching for the perfect gift. Because now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode on Etsy is here to take the stress out of gifting so you can find the perfect item for anyone for any occasion. And it's easy. You just tap or click gift mode in your Etsy app or Etsy.com and then answer a few questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And gift mode instantly gives you a curated gift idea list based on hundreds of personas. Now it is simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a Mother's Day gift for the quilter or a birthday present for the vintage hunter, there is something for everyone on Etsy. Some of my favorite things to do are go to Etsy gift mode and then search absurd things like what kind of gifts do you have with Walter Cronkite on them? What kind of gifts do you have for dachshund owners? There's jewelry, ceramic, toys, board games, all kinds of fun stuff. A gifting moment is always right around the corner, whether it's a birthday, an anniversary, a holiday, or even just a day to say thank you. Gift mode on Etsy has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try gift mode on Etsy now. Today's episode of American Fever Dream is brought to you by Newly. Have you ever felt that fast fashion ick, but can't always afford the super high-end stuff? I have a solution for you. It's Newly. Newly has everything you need to bring your closet up to speed for the season without breaking the bank. Free your closet of impulse purchases and skip the buyer's remorse by renting instead. Newly is a subscription rental service, and for just $98 a month, you get your choice of any six styles. 
They also have inclusive sizing up to 5X as well as petite and maternity. You get fast, free shipping and returns and professional cleaning and newly state-of-the-art laundering facility. No laundry for you to worry about. This is the best. You just put it back in your box, send it out, and before you know it, you've got your next one. And you always have the option to buy what you love for sometimes up to 75% off. I bought the Rachel Antonoff pasta puffer from them. I was obsessed with it, like everybody who tries it is, and it was completely sold out everywhere else. So I felt like I really, really had an in there. So thank you, Newly. Newly is an amazing value at $98 a month for any six styles. And right now you can get $20 off your first month of Newly when you sign up with the code FeverDream20. Just go to N-U-U-L-Y.com. That's newly with two U's and enter the code FeverDream20 and sign up to get $20 off your first month. That's N-U-U-L-Y.com, newly with two U's with code FeverDream20. Newly subscription clothing rental, change your clothes. This is a really fantastic book for people to read anytime, but especially right now because you you take a lot of time to explain to people what you've learned about how power works in politics mm-hmm. and the intersection between activism and political power. Um, and you recognize your role as a political operative is to win access to spaces where change can be made. But you also write about being a political operative doesn't mean you have no boundaries, which I think a lot of people sometimes <laughs> assume. It means that it's actually so important to think really carefully about what your boundaries are. And I think a lot of people might be thinking about that now as they realize that they are in spaces of power or privilege or have a platform that they maybe have not really been using uh, to, 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 to do the most good. Why do you think it's especially important to know your boundaries when you're in a position of power? And and. How do you, how does that work into your day-to-day life? What kind of encounters do you have where you have to think to yourself again and really reflect on what those boundaries are? What your boundaries are. So I call it my personal, I, I call it a line. So I have a personal yeah. and professional line. And I think it's a, it's important to have a line because um, if, if you don't have a line, if you don't have like a stopgap on, if, uh, where, where are your guardrails? My line is my guardrail if you will. So my personal professional line is my guardrail. And the line is, you know, if, if this, if X happens, I know what, what to do, how I will react, that I need to say something, that I need to do something, that I need to course correct my behavior. If X happens, if someone says Y, if Z comes up into, you know, comes into my space. Um, and I, I think it's important. We all have to have a personal professional line because we will be challenged in our everyday lives and our professional lives. And maybe it's, you know, this, this crude joke, this, um, this crass thing someone in the office says. Maybe it's discussing policy or what, what we're building. And I just really encourage people that you have to have a boundary. You have to have a line. You have to know that if this thing is said, if, 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 if this line is crossed, I'm going to have to speak up and say something. There are just some things you can't say around me. There's some things you cannot do in my presence. I don't care who you are. And there's just some things I will not tolerate. There are things that I just, I, I will never use my, um, the, 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 the little bit of privilege that I do have and the space and power that I do have to execute on some things because that just flies in the direct face of who I am. And I, that helps me, you know, stay on track. And so I encourage everybody to get a line, find your personal professional line, but also understand and know what you're going to do when someone crosses it. Exactly. And I think that's the most valuable thing about it is that you can strategize what you're going to do. It's not case by case. Oh God. Oh no. Here are the factors and they're different. And I don't know. Where's my line? Just ask yourself where your line is. And I think that's really, yeah. 
In the book, you began your work in juvenile justice when you two were a young person. I mean, you're still a young person, so everything you've done has been as a young person, I guess. And you were actually, you described in the book being one of the first people to suggest actually bringing the voices of young people in detention to conversations about young people in detention. Um, Reading about this in your book, I realized that I wasn't sure if the issue of youth incarceration is really as present in these conversations that we're having right now as they should be. Even just reading your book, the, the concept of detaining children is so sickening. And um, I just, it just occurred to me that this should be such a bigger part of the conversation. Do you think it will be? How do you think we change that and center that part of it? I mean, look, I think we, so will I think, it, do, do, do I think it will be a bigger part of the conversation? Not unless we make it a bigger part of the conversation. You know, I, um, I work for Vice President Biden and I'm very proud of, of the fact that in his criminal justice platform, he has a section on juvenile justice. And so he talks about reform and includes reforming the juvenile justice system in that. Oftentimes when people are talking about reform to the criminal justice system, they're talking about the adult system. They're not talking about the system that directly affects our young people. They're not talking about um, the, the pipeline that children and young people get into that feed them into not just detention, but eventually like jail, adult prisons. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not talking about reform and we're not talking about um, making sure the folks that are closest to the problem are the people who are involved in fixing the issue. So I, I think as long as we continue to ensure that we're being intentional, I, I guess a lot of the, the themes in my book are about intentionality really. um, yeah. and being intentional about your actions and what you say and what you do, but we also have to be intentional about policy about the kind of conversations we're having. So uh, I sit on one of the, you know, those task forces. Everybody yes. <laughs> talks about the Sanders-Biden uh, task forces, and I'm on the criminal justice task force. And while uh, we're not divulging what we're discussing, I can absolutely say that there are people um, at the table, a number of folks who have at the forefront of their mind, including juvenile justice in the conversation. Yeah, absolutely. In the book, you also really contextualize the role of party factions in a way that feels, I think people hear the term faction and they freak out, but I think you do it in a way that's a bit clarifying and shows like there actually is a way to work together. Here's how we can yeah. maybe get there. But you you wrote that you think that failing to connect with people across party factions is, is part of what lost Democrats the 2016 presidential election. Do you think these factions are more united now? No, I don't think they're more united. <laughs> no, I do not think the factions are necessarily more united, but I do think that the factions have a have 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 a similar goals, right? Okay. So when I say factions for folks, you know, there is a what I like to call in the book a Democratic Party apparatus, and there's a Republican Party apparatus. Like the apparatus is the nucleus of power. Um, is the apparatus is the machine, but the fuel that makes the machine run is the factions. Mm-hmm. On the Democratic side of the aisle, you can, I mean, we can sit here and we could probably come up with 150 different factions. You know, women, black women, progressives, you know, blue dog Democrats, you know, Obama, Biden, Democrats, so on and so forth. I mean, and the, and the factions are not mutually exclusive. So mm-hmm. you could be a woman and LGBTQ+. You can be a working class and, like, progressive. So there's all these different, different factions. But I will say that I think that um, the factions now... They, 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 have, they understand that none of the progress that they are looking for, whether you are a, you know, uh, a, a Bernie bro or a former Hillary supporter or Obama Biden Democrat or, you know, um, you know, choice is your issue. Not everyone understands that none of the change we are looking for will happen 
if Donald Trump is allowed another four years of the last, I would argue, like four to seven days. So mm -hmm. I think that this is different and that the factions are, I don't want to say that they're united because, you know, they all still have very specific things. Some of the factions just want to be right. They just want to be right on their issues. Some people are more concerned with winning. They're like, look, we can be right after we've won. And we have right. the power to do what we need to do. But I do think that in general, all of the factions in their own way, shape, and form understand on the Democratic side of the aisle what needs to happen this November in order for the change that they, um, that each of them all advocate for, sometimes they fight about, in order for it to come to fruition. So I think that that is what's different than in 2016. Yeah. In 2016, there were factions that were just like, look, I don't think that this election is going to help bring change. And I think those folks were wrong. But the reality is now everyone can see the, you know, the writing on the wall, the road before us. Exactly. And I think yeah. it makes for a better, a better working relationship. So it is just, a, it is truly about communicating with these folks um, with meticulous, as I like to say, uh, meticulous surgical precision yeah. and really doing outreach group to group to group. Um, figuring out how we can bring those folks to the table and work with them or see what their plan is, how they're working adjacent to um, what folks in the apparatus are doing. And it takes work, but that's what's needed if, if folks want to see a change come this November. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. I'd love to ask you, um, wrapping up, about a particular paragraph in Know You Shut Up, where you write, here's an uncomfortable truth I hold. I believe we have yet to have a real conversation about race or equity in America because the conversation has yet to be had outside the lens of white supremacist ideology and the patriarchy. I think you wrote this book about a year ago. I wrote um, a year ago. Yeah, the past wow. couple of weeks, but it wouldn't, I mean, I feel like this hasn't, things haven't changed over a year. They have a little bit, but the past three weeks, things have really accelerated. Do you think we're on a path to maybe have those conversations outside of the sort of colonized way we tend to have them? Do you think we're on that path? Yes, I think we've nice. started to have those conversations. I mean, the to, to be clear, you know, George Floyd was just the latest name that we knew. There was Breonna Taylor, there's Maude Arbery, there's Trayvon Martin, there's Michael Brown, there's Sandra Bland, there's Shamir Rice, like all the names that we know, Richard Brooks now that we know all of the names that we know, and then still the names that we don't know. And so mm -hmm. I actually believe that the, the reckoning that we're seeing and the uncomfortable conversations America is now being forced to have with the veil of white supremacy pulled off is due to this, these compounding things that have happened all at once. You had the, the, um, the string of viral videos. I mean, you know, Ahmaud Arbery, the video of his lynching, was a couple weeks before, was a week and a half, I believe, before the we knew Breonna Taylor saying. And then about a week and a half later, we had the horrific killing of the video of George Floyd. Before that, we're in the midst of a pandemic, okay? More right. than 42 million people have filed for unemployment insurance. There are more than, more than 110,000 deaths due to the coronavirus pandemic. Many of those who have died, many of those jobless, African-American and Latino in this country. I fully believe that. Um, George Floyd was just people saying enough. 
Enough. And then you saw the people in Minneapolis organizing and protesting, and that prompted other folks to organize and protest. It wasn't until the people in Minneapolis who were directly, who were closest to the issue, to the issue of the specific case of George Floyd, decided that this was enough, that they, that the pain um, that they felt in not only seeing the video, but knowing his family, the pain that was heard in his voice when he screamed out for his mother and said, I can't breathe, that galvanized them to move into act. And so I think now we are having real conversations about what does it really mean in terms of equity in America? Mm. Um, do we actually have racial equity? What What is a racial equity um, package look like? What What kind of policies do we need to change? Why are, why are white people calling the police on black people for seemingly just existing? I think of the case of Christian Cooper in the park, mm-hmm. like bird watching. The woman says, she's like, I'm, I'm going to call the police and tell them I'm being assaulted by an African-American man. Okay, well, let's unpack this because yeah. what is yeah. happening here? So I think finally we are at a point, at least the last, I would argue, week and a half, we are having this uncomfortable, um, very frank conversation. The question is, will the conversation continue and will the conversation move to action? I would argue that we've already seen some action. We've seen Congress move with a bill um, about police reform, and it's the start of the process. We've seen cities across the country um, make moves and policies. We've seen organizations like Campaign Zero come out with the um, police reform platforms like Eight Camp Wait. And so I, I think some change has already happened, but as I write in the book, like change is, is structural change, as you know, my good friend Elizabeth Warren likes to talk about. Yeah. Structural change does not happen in a microwave and it does not happen overnight. And so real change will only come if we continue the conversation and we are committed to doing whatever it is, the con- doing whatever it is needs to be done. So, but like, we have to have the conversation to figure out what are some of the things that need to happen. We have to have these uncomfortable conversations to begin to turn people's eye towards what it is that we have to be focused on. Yeah. So, I mean, I hope so. I, I think that, you know, when I wrote that, we were not having this very frank conversation about white supremacy in America. Now, we are, in the last week and a half or so, people are like, you know what? There's something going on here. There's something yeah. going on. Yes, there is. Let's talk about what's going on and let's discuss how we can fix it, how we can create real change. But change is not happening in the microwave. So yeah. if, every, if we stop having this conversation next week and, you know, we wait until the next viral video for folks to, to stand up and say, well, what, what can we do? I think we've missed the moment. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that people underestimate how, how ready activists that started all of this in 2014 are for us to be ready to meet the moment. As you were writing about the apparatus and the difference between activists outside and those inside, I've realized over the past four years, I mean, I, I know people that are just learning about Campaign Zero, but they don't realize that's the people who bo- were putting their bodies on the line in six years ago and never stopped. Yeah. And now are able to like are so ready to meet this moment with with what they're putting out there. Um, yes, yeah. No, I can just say Ray McKesson, um, one of the co-founders of Campaign Zero, is a good friend of mine, and he took early on. I met him in 2016. He helped me with the activists. Yeah, yeah. And or he said something to me early on that's always stuck with me. He says, you know, we don't want to be in the streets forever, and. It just like really clicked on me. Like the activists actually don't want to be in the streets forever. Like they want change and they want real actual change. That structural change that folks are talking about. The last thing I'll say about activists is look, that much ink has been spilled about young people in America and the activists and how, you know, maybe they're not keyed in on voting. And this is what I say to those folks. When I live in Washington, DC, I'm in DC right now. 
And then when the protests broke out all across the country, in D.C., they did not go to the Wilson Building where the mayor works. They did not go to the Department of Justice. They went to the White House. House. The activists went to the White House, and they have stayed outside of the White House consistently, raising their voices, marching, protesting. Why? Because they know who the president is matters. They know what the president says matters. The policies that the president can enact matters. Who the president appoints matters. And so young people, especially these young folks in the street, I think um, know more than the rest of us how important, how critical November is. So I'm not concerned about young people. Honestly, I'm really not. I think they are paying attention. I think they are keyed in. I think as a campaign person, our campaign has to do our job and make sure that we are speaking to them and talking to them. But let's not pretend like young people don't understand the stakes of this election, because they do. Because they went to the White House, because Mm -hmm. they know that's where the power is. Yeah, absolutely. My last question, I just wanted to ask you, what do you want people, for people that listen to this and pick up No You Shut Up this week, what do you want them to take from it? How do you want people to feel after they, after they finish it? I want people to feel like they can just get, let me grab this book because I'm going yeah. <laughs> to my book right here. Yeah. Um, what I want people to take from No You Shut Up is that now that this is a, this is an inflection point in, in history, this is an inflection point, regardless of whatever side of the political aisle you sit on, this is an inflection point. And you should want to look back on this time and you should look back fondly knowing that you did something to help create change in your everyday space and place, right? And so I talk a lot about the book and being a radical revolutionary. And I want people to walk away, you know, feeling like they know how to be a radical revolutionary in their everyday space and place. Radical revolutionary doesn't mean you take up a sign and you go down to the die-in and everybody has yeah. to be an activist. No. Radical revolutionary means what are you doing to push boundaries to take risks, to stand in the gap for other folks in what in, in your everyday space and place. So whether you're a teacher, whether you're an executive, whether you're a marketing professional, whether you sit on a, a board in a community, like what are you doing to push the boundary, to contribute to this moment? Are you suggesting that we put the money elsewhere? Are you encouraging that we include new voices? Do you say we don't do that program anymore because it really doesn't help anybody? We're only doing it because that one donor wants us yeah. to do the program. Do we push ourselves to take on um, different projects? We have to make ourselves uncomfortable. So I just really want people to walk away understanding and knowing that whether you are a young person or a young person at heart, that you can do something in this moment. And the last thing I'll say is I will read the last paragraph in my book because in the epilogue, because it is extremely accurate to what is happening right now. It says, it may not feel like it every day, but I promise you, we have the power we can do this from the office to the classroom to the ballot box and the strike line we have the power whether you live in a rural community or an urban center our voices can and do change things find your place ladies and gentlemen rise up this is our country and our participation is mandatory for change it is our engagement that is the source of the gains we have made and can continue to make in our country toward a more equitable safe healthy and hopeful future for us all. Evergreen, exactly. There we go. Thank you so much. Again, the book is called No You Shut Up, Speaking Truth to Power and Reclaiming America by Simone Sanders. Thank you so, so much for your time and for helping us get a new president. Oh, my pleasure. You know, we do everything we can. We know, um, I, I know. appreciate you guys. Thank you so much, Simone. 
The Betcha Sup Podcast is produced by Amanda Duberman. Our podcast managers are Mike Coscarelli and Sean Kilby. Social media by Amanda Duberman. Artwork by Brittany Levine. The Sup is created by Sammy Fishbein. Be sure to follow us at Betches underscore Sup on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. And send your emails to Sup at Betches.com. Betches.